0: Turn in the Bible with me to Ephesians as we prepare to read. I ask you to stay standing this morning. As we prepare to read God's Word together, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, we've been walking through this letter of Paul to the Christians in Ephesus. And the first three chapters, we've been looking at the basics of the gospel, how Both Jews and Gentiles were saved by Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. And now this morning we transition to the second half of his letter that deals with how now to live in the light of this glorious salvation of Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Paul writes and he says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. May God bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me, Lord? I ask you to give us wisdom this morning as we study. Lord, we know that we cannot understand spiritual truth unless you teach us, unless you give us eyes to see, we will never comprehend all of who Christ is. And so God, I ask you, I plead with you as a pastor of these people to pour out your grace on them that, God, they might love you. God, that they might worship you. And they would love your words, not mine. Oh, Father, I pray you will stir up within every heart who is able to hear my voice right now, that you would stir up every heart to love you more and to seek you more and to hate sin more. And, God, I pray That the treasures of this world will be exposed to be fleeting while the treasures of your presence are eternal. Feed your sheep, God, by your truth this morning. Lord, help me to preach in a way that would lead people to love you. Lord, I thank you that we do not serve in a community that has only one church that preaches the truth. Oh God, I am supremely grateful that throughout our communities, are churches that desire to make Christ known. And Lord, I thank you for churches that I am personally connected to, for those who have pastors who I know personally. Father, I pray for Matt Moore, the pastor of Cedarview Baptist Church, I pray as he stands up in the pulpit, maybe even now, that, God, you might grant him boldness in the gospel, that he might preach the truth, and, God, that many will come to know you as a result. Father, I pray for my brother Stan May in Emanuel Baptist Church. God, I pray that as he preaches the word, God, that you might draw sinners to yourself. I pray for my brother Wade Humphreys in Longview Point in Hernando. God, use him mightily to preach the good news of Christ. Father, be with those in our church right now who are sacrificing their time in here to watch over our babies. Lord, I pray that you'd bless them. And I pray, Lord, that their time this morning with our children will be a time that they can just begin to shower them with the love of Christ. That one day, all of the children of our church will call out your name, and that every adult in this place will worship you. Oh, Father, I know that I can do nothing in my own power, that my words do not have the power to save. And God, I'm grateful that your word does save. Rescue hearts, renew the spirit of joy in our hearts today. Preach to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know if you're excited about this or not, but I have divided today's sermon actually into two sermons. So we were going to cover 16 verses today, but we're only going to make it through about six or seven. That may be truly joyous for you, or you may be really concerned that it took me that I had to break it into two. But I hope what you find this morning is a beautiful picture of the bond of our unity. That Jesus didn't save us just to be individual Christians floating around in the world. But God saved us into a spiritual family. That we're not alone. But we have brothers and sisters around us who have also trusted in Jesus. And who love him and can push us to love him more. I don't know about you, I'm excited about that because the thought of me being by myself is not good. I need other people around me who are going to shove me towards Jesus. Because let's be honest, we live in a world that seeks to draw us away from Christ. And we need each other working together, going in the same direction together to push us to love Jesus more and to love each other more. Now, is that easy to do? No. Does it sound a lot more joyous just to stay in my bed for another two and a half hours every day? You better believe it. Do I always go, yay, I get to go be around people who are probably gonna drive me crazy? You do the same thing. You wake up every morning going, do I want to go walk through what I'm about to walk through? Because I know I drive you crazy. I know I I've, I've push the buttons. But what we need more than anything is to see that we have been united together for the supreme joy of serving God together and making him known throughout the community. And we get to do that through Christ. The same Jesus rescued all of us who are in this room and saved. The same Jesus rescued us all, and as such, we have unity together, but sometimes it's hard to love one another. Sometimes it's hard to care about one another. Now, I can see from the smiles and the nods that you're not going to say out loud who those people are, but you know in your brain the ones who you got to try a little bit harder to love. And you know in your brain the ones that you got to try a little bit harder to be patient with. The good news is, in Christ, we have all we need to be unified together as a family of God and to glorify Him. But we need to be reminded of how hard of a job that's going to be. So Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1 through 6, Paul lays out for us that in order to keep unity within the body of Jesus is going to have to require some sacrifice. And it's going to have to require some intentional loving of some people who are really hard to love. Unity does not come naturally. It is only brought through the grace of God. Now, I want to remind you, in case you're here for the first time and you're hearing us work through Ephesians, this letter was written by Paul. Most likely under house arrest in Rome around A.D. 62. And we know that during his third missionary journey, Paul spent three years ministering in Ephesus. It is the longest period of time he ever spent in one location. And so you can imagine that Paul developed a deep relationship with the people he's writing to here. These are not just acquaintances. These are a lot of people who he spent a lot of time with. And he wants to show them that in a city like Ephesus that was filled with pagan idolatry and wrong thinking, he wants to lay out the truth of what Jesus did, which is what he spent chapters 1, 2, and 3 talking about, how one is saved, who is Christ, why does he deserve your worship. And then in chapter 4, he transitions to how to live your life In the light of all that Christ has done. That we don't just become Christians and then put it on cruise control until we get to heaven. We become Christians and then we live every day in this new creation that we've been made into. So it's not just enough to know some facts about the Bible or to know some theology. God is interested in us not only knowing who he is but living out the salvation that has been brought to us. So how we live matters. And the way you're going to see this clearly is in the church. You want to know how God changes people and causes them to love others above themselves? Hopefully in the church is where you'll see that. So at Fairhaven, we need to live out the salvation God has given us. There we go. I'll I'll take one and then we'll move on. Just so you know, it only takes one to keep this thing rolling. We need to love each other and walk in unity because division will creep up and we must fight against it. The only way shattered communities can be redeemed is through Jesus. And the only way divided churches can be healed is through Jesus. Now, I'm grateful this morning that Fairhaven is not a divided church. We are unified. Is our unity perfect? No. No church's unity is perfect. But I can tell you that we're not divided today. But it doesn't mean it can't come. And it doesn't mean we don't need to be on guard against division. We need to strive for unity, which is why we have verses 1 through 6. So let's walk through it quickly together. There are two sections I want to point out to you today. Number one is I want to show you that we are to walk in unity. We're to walk in unity. Look at verses 1, 2, and 3. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. See, Paul mentions that we have been called as Christians to a new life, a new walk. When the Bible uses the word walk, it's usually referring to how you live, To walk in a manner worthy of the calling means to live your life in a manner worthy of the fact that Jesus saves you. That's a big deal. When Jesus saves us, we are to walk in a way that models and gives glory to the fact that Christ rescued us. So we're to walk in a manner worthy of this salvation that we have. And just so you know, just as it is only by God's grace that we're saved... It's only by God's grace that we're able to walk every day worthy of this calling. We have to have God's grace in all of it. Karl Barth, a the theologian, said, Grace is the incomprehensible fact that God is well pleased with a man and that a man can rejoice in God. Only when grace is recognized to be incomprehensible is it Grace. Grace exists, therefore, only where the resurrection is reflected. Grace is the gift of Christ who exposes the gulf which separates God and man, and by exposing it, bridges it. See, it's the grace of God that is incomprehensible to us that a holy God would bridge the gap between him and us as ruthless sinners. That is the great the more we are in the more that fact is incomprehensible to us the more we're understanding what grace is our lives as christians should make evident this truth that god alone can bring life to the dead the way we live our lives should magnify to the world that it's only god who can make dead people alive Again, I don't just mean physically, I mean spiritually alive. Those who were outcasts and strangers, dead in their trespasses and sins, who have been made alive in Christ, our lives need to model and reflect that grace God has given us. Now, Paul urges the believers in Ephesus to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That means to live in a way that is reflective of the sacrifice of Christ We should live in a way as to reflect what God has done in adopting us. We reflect that to other people. Paul urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, but I want you to notice that that urging can only happen after we've been saved. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 matter because you cannot walk in a manner worthy of the calling if you ain't been called. You can't walk in a way to glorify God if you're not saved. Can you do it temporarily? Can you do some good things? Yes. But you will never walk in a manner. You will never live in a manner worthy of God if we're not saved. So Paul had to share Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 to point out you need to be saved. You're a sinner who's dead in your trespasses. You need to be rescued by Christ. You need to be made alive in him. And Jesus is the only one who can do it. Then chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you. So listen, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you can't walk in a manner worthy. All the good things you do, it's not enough. You can't, apart from the rescue of Jesus, walk in a manner worthy of the calling of God. And guess what? It is actually God who does the calling. Because if we're to walk in a manner worthy of it, we have to ask, who does the calling? Well, God does. God does. We see that in chapter 1, verses 16 through 23. We're told we are dead. We've been given new life, not because of anything that we've done, but simply by the wonderful grace of God. Now, shouldn't that impact the way we live? When we come face to face with the truth that God sacrificed his own son in our place. Have we truly come to grasp the fact that, That we are little bitty people, full of sin, whom God, the holy creator of all things, sent his son to die for. That is incomprehensible to me. Who is man that you are mindful of him? Our hearts have to echo that to God. Who are we that you would save us? That's the incomprehensible grace, and that's what we need to understand if we're ever gonna walk in a manner worthy of God's calling. It's to realize that it is unbelievable. That God has given his own son to die in our place. Reminds me of a movie, Saving Private Ryan. I don't know if any of you have ever seen it. It's pretty violent. and You shouldn't watch it probably. But I'm not telling you to go watch it. I'm just saying that there's, the whole picture behind that movie is there's a band of soldiers. And as they're traveling, I hope I'm not giving anything away. As they're traveling to go find this one soldier to, to send him home, several of them die along the way. All to rescue this one guy. So he can go home. I'm telling you, until we understand and grasp that sacrifice. I remember there's a scene at the end of the movie when the character who was saved, Private Ryan, is older. And he goes to Arlington National Cemetery and he sees the gravestone of of the commander who led the group who was going to find him to send him home. And he stood before the gravestone. I remember he said this. He said, I pray that I've lived my life in a way that honored the sacrifice you made for me. In that moment, what you're seeing is a smaller picture of the sacrifice of Christ. How could we ever look upon Jesus who has rescued us from our sin, given us life instead of death? How could we not say to him, oh, I pray my life models and reflects how grateful I am for the fact you've saved me. Oh, that my life wouldn't be a waste chasing after things that only uh, I care about. But my life would be lived showing other people how grateful I am that you died on the cross for me over 2,000 years ago. You were buried in a grave for me over 2,000 years ago. You rose from the grave for me over 2,000 years ago. That my life would reflect that reality every day. In the church, we need to be people who are walking, living in a manner worthy of the fact that Christ Himself shed His blood for you and for me. That's a hefty. That's a hefty walk a big responsibility. But it only happens by the grace of God. How could such a great truth not impact every area of our lives? Now, starting in verse 2, we see the characteristics of the walk. You want to know how you're supposed to walk? What's this walk look like? Verses 2 begins to show us. Verse 2 begins to show us. God has called them to understanding that sometimes it's hard to rub shoulders with some people. Two theologians wrote a commentary, E.K. Simpson and F.F. F. Bruce, and they said this in their commentary about this section. These are their words, not mine. I want to preface that. Quote, not a few genuine but crotchety believers have no sense of proportion or perspective to their distorted vision mole hills and mountains are much alike either of them presents a fatal barrier in their cantankerous judgments to cooperation end quote there are some people who are a little bit hard to love there are some believers who are a little crotchety There are some believers who are a little stubborn. There are some believers who have distorted. Uh, Am I shocking anybody in the room right now? Because you're looking at all the people going, I know who you're talking about, Jason. And some of you think I'm talking about me. That there are, sometimes we can get a little cantankerous in our judgments. Sometimes we can react a little harshly in our judgments. Sometimes we can make mountains and molehills the same. We can take a small little thing that really shouldn't amount to much and make it a huge deal. Some of you in the room know who you are. I'm just kidding. I'm, the finger is pointed at me because there are days I'm like that. There are days I make molehills into mountains. That I I gotta have my way and I gotta have it now. There are some days I rub shoulders with people and I'm like, you're driving me crazy. I got, there are some days I got to go to people and look at them and I got to try really hard to love them. And you know what this is like because you have to do it too. Here's the good news. We can do it. <laughs> we can. And I'm not going to listen to excuses if I'm just not wired that way. Well, you know what? So what? You've been rewired by God. He's saved you. He's given you a new heart. Guess what that means? You can love crotchety people. There you go. You can love people who drive you crazy. In Jesus, you can love people who know where that nerve is and know how to dig in there. But it means you're going to have to try to love them. And here's what he says the Christian life is characterized as. Are you ready? God's so good, he breaks it down for us. He wants to show us exactly what this walk looks like. So let's rank ourselves on how we do in these areas, because this is what we as Christians should live every day. He says, with all humility. Humility means to consider others greater than yourselves. Do you know how you walk in a manner worthy of the calling of God? You love other people more than you love yourself. You care about the needs of others more than yours. Is that hard to do? I would submit to you that is impossible to do apart from Christ. And yet we're told in Philippians chapter 2 that's exactly what Jesus demonstrated for us. Jesus demonstrated ultimate humility. Paul said in Philippians 2, he said this, Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He did what? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is not asking us to do anything he hasn't already done himself. And can I submit to you that Jesus coming in the form of a human being, dying on the cross for our sin, that is the greatest act of humility the world has ever seen and ever will see. So we're called to model that. We're called to live in humility. Humility, by the way, was certainly not a virtue in the city of Ephesus. Humility would have been viewed as weakness. You're humble because you're not powerful. Number two, so not only are we to be humble, but we're also to be gentle. He says, with all humility and gentleness... Uh-oh. That means meekness. We see Paul exhorting the Corinthians to do this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. He says, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. In 2 Timothy 2.25, Paul tells Timothy to correct opponents of his with gentleness. Not to beat him over the head, but to be gentle when he dealt with those who were coming at him. As with humility... The Ephesians would have viewed gentleness as a weakness. You know why you're gentle? Because you're weak. That would not have been a virtue for them to be gentle. Number three, not only are they to be humble, not only gentle, uh-oh, with patience. Oh, we could get the humble and the gentleness part, but not the patience part. It means self restraint of the mind before it gives root to action. You know what patience is? When the mind tells you, let's go punch them in the mouth. But the self restraint that you catch it before it turns into punch them in the mouth. That patience is the self restraint that keeps the thought from becoming action. And oh, how we need to practice some patience. Some self-restraint that keeps it from coming from the brain into action. Is that easy? Oh, no. Especially not when that person cuts you off in traffic. You, uh, I don't like patience in that moment. I would love instant justice. I would love to, I found a video on YouTube of people just getting caught violating the law. It's a video that's nothing but people running red lights, making illegal turns, and the cops being right there when they do it and pulling them over immediately. And everyone on these videos, you can hear the audio of what they're saying in the car as they're recording what's happening. And every person who got pulled over immediately, the people in the car filming it said, Yay! You got them! That's what we want when people come at us. When people cross us, we want to avenge ourselves immediately. We want justice to come immediately. Guess what patience is? Patience is the self-restraint to say, I am going to bear with you. And by the way, you're going to need people to bear with you back. (laughs) Stop looking at your neighbor to say, "You, you listening? We all need to listen to this one. The word is used in the Old Testament and the New Testament, catch this, in relationship between God and people. God says, be patient. And he's able to say, be patient. You know why? Because he was patient with us. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Didn't we read that this morning? The two most important verses in the Old Testament that tell us about God. Guess what we were told about God. The Lord passed before him. Proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Slow to anger. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. How did God respond to us? He didn't condemn us immediately. He didn't wipe us off the face of the earth immediately. He didn't smite us immediately the moment we came into existence. He was patient towards us. Peter says God was long-suffering. That he looked past our sins of the past in his son Jesus. The reason we're able to exercise patience towards each other is because God was patient with us. How could we ever not be patient with each other when God has demonstrated supreme patience with us? Okay, so those are the three main areas he gives us of how our lives should be characterized as Christians. And now, what he does, real quick, at the end of these verses, is he shows us what it means to be patient towards someone. Notice what he says bearing with one another in love. Oh, man. God says that as Christians, we've got to bear with one another. This is what patience is, bearing with each other. Paul put it this way in Colossians 3.13 when he was talking about this very thing. In the description of the new self, Paul says, bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. God calls Christians to live a life that is marked by bearing with one another. Just so you know, we know we need to do this. We just don't like it. (laughs) Because bearing with one another isn't easy because it means you've got to put up with a lot of junk from other people. But guess what? While it may not be easy, we know the motivation behind it. The motivation is because we love one another. Because Christ loved us, we love each other as brothers and sisters. And that means we're willing to bear with each other when we fail and hurt one another. And just so you know, the church will reflect whether we're walking in a manner worthy of our calling as we work this out together in the group. This is why you need the church. is because this is the only way you can demonstrate what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Because you can't model this at home by yourself. You'll always bear with you. We're good at that. We can bear with ourselves. But the problem comes when we got to be around Other people, especially other Christians. Well, guess what? God's called you to be part of a church family. He's called you to be part of a church so that you can reflect and live out this life worthy of the manner in which you were called. Because you can't do that at home by yourself. You got to do it among these people who drive you nuts. That's how we display it. That's how we bear with one another. And that can only happen in hearts that have been changed by God. It doesn't happen because we wake up one day and go, you know what, I think I'm gonna try to bear with people today. The only way we can do this, Paul tells us, is after chapters one through three have happened. After we've been saved by the blood of Christ, can we do these things? In verse three, notice what Paul says. He says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We are called as Christians to eagerly maintain the unity in the bond. What does that tell us? It implies that division can arise. That anytime Christians are together, division can happen. And so we have to be eager as Christians to maintain our unity. Well, what are we united in? I'm glad you asked. Because Paul clears that up for us in verses four through six. Seven areas of fundamental unity, and we're gonna go fast through these. Don't think, oh no, Jason just said we're gonna talk about seven things. We know it's gonna take it's gonna go quick. Seven areas of fundamental unity. We cannot violate the gospel to maintain unity, but the gospel is the fuel to our unity. We don't stay united. Basically, we don't say, well, if, if uh, believing that Jesus is the only way to heaven divides people, then we need to be unified. No. We don't, we don't violate the gospel to be unified. We are unified in the truths of who Jesus is. But there are seven areas that are connected to the Trinity, and I want to point these out to you. They break up into three groups. The Spirit, the Son, and the Father. First, we see the unity in the Spirit. Notice what he says in verse 4. He says, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. What does Paul tell us? There is one body of Christ. Listen, we might have different churches that meet different areas and different denominations. It doesn't mean that there's different families of God. We might have different representations throughout a community, but be clear, There is one body of Jesus. This is important because in Ephesus, the Jews and the Gentile Christians might have started breaking off into different directions. But God says, you're not separated from each other. You are one body in Jesus. So while we have different churches, anyone who calls upon the name of Jesus and preaches the gospel, that is a family member of ours. (gasps) Oh! Did you know it's not going to be Southern Baptist heaven and Presbyterian heaven and Methodist heaven? There's going to be one body of Christ from all the people who have been rescued by the blood of Jesus. There is one body, one visible community of Jesus. This is seen in the unity between Jews and Gentiles that Paul's been writing about. In a society like Ephesus where there would have been many cults to choose from, the Christians formed one body. We have many denominations, but one universal family of God. Not only that, he tells us there is one spirit that unites us. We've been studying this on Wednesday evenings and Wednesday mornings, that the same spirit that fell on the Jewish believers in Acts chapter 2 is the same spirit that fell on Gentile believers in Acts chapter 10. There's not one spirit for one group and another spirit for another. There is one Holy Spirit who indwells all Christians. And we're told by Paul here there is only one hope that is guaranteed by the spirit. One hope, and that hope is found only in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Peter tells us we've been called into a living hope. Guess what? There's only one true hope that Christians have, and it's based in Jesus. We share that together. So we see the unity in the spirit, that there's one body, one spirit, one hope. Number two, we see unity in the Son. Verse five, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There is only one Lord. There's not many lords. There's only one true Lord. We're told in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What name is that? It's the name of Christ. There's only one Lord. There's only one Savior, and it's Jesus. There's none other. There aren't many ways to salvation. There is only one. Why? Because there's not multiple lords. There's only one. Not only that, but we're told there is one faith, one set of truths that unite us together. What is that set of truths? It's the gospel of Christ laid out for us by the prophets and by the apostles. The foundation. Remember, Paul is going to talk about this in a, in a little bit. He's going to talk about the foundation of the body, the foundation of the temple of God. And guess where it starts? The prophets and the apostles who taught the truth of who Christ was. We have one faith, one faith, one gospel that we believe in. And also there's one baptism. We're all baptized into the family of God in the same way through Christ, by His Spirit. There's only one baptism of the Spirit, and everyone who believes in Christ is baptized by the Spirit. Regenerated, made new, washed clean through Jesus So we see the unity that exists, not only unity in the Spirit, unity in the Son, but then finally, unity in the Father. Notice what he says in verse 6, and one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. I love this reference to God because it basically says God is everything. God, God is everything. There's one God and Father of all. All what? All people, all everything. There's only one God. There's only one God who created every human being who ever walked the earth. There's only one God who created every human being in his image. There's only one God and Father of all humanity. He is overall. What does that mean? Not overalls, as in, but he's overall, right? He is sovereign. He's the, he's the king. He is overall. No one exercises authority over God. He exercises authority over everything else. There is one Father over all. There is one God and Father who is th- through all. This picture of the consuming presence of God, his sovereignty and his presence is unmistakable. He is the creator of all. He's the Lord of all. And He's the one who works in all. And not only that, but he is in all. Oh, the supremacy of this God who's over and through and in all. He is the king of kings. Oh, how sweet the grace of God that the ruler of the universe would pour out his grace on sinners like us, and his grace is indeed great. I really want you to get excited about the grace of God. I really do. If I I do nothing else for you as a pastor, I hope I just make you excited about the fact that God is really gracious to us. That's good. Especially good when you consider how great he is and how sinful we've been. Charles Spurgeon said this. Everybody knows I'm a huge Charles Spurgeon fan, so you're not going to be, you're not be uh, scared to find a, a quote from his. Charles Spurgeon said this. The bridge of grace will bear your weight, brother. Thousands of big sinners have gone across that bridge. Yea, tens of thousands have gone over it. Some have been the chief of sinners and some have come at the very last of their days. But the the arch has never yielded beneath their weight. Here's what Spurgeon said about himself. He says, I will go with them. Trusting that to the same support. It will bear me over as it has for them. I love that picture. Spurgeon says that this gulf between us and God has been bridged by Christ. And he says that the death, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, his sacrifice for us, has, is the bridge we walk across to God. And he said, oh, that bridge is sturdy because there's been a lot of big old sinners that have gone across that bridge. And guess what? If it supported them as they walked across, Spurgeon says, I know it will bear my weight too as I go. That's the trust he had in God. He is able to save the chief of sinners And I'll close with this. Oh, Christians in the room, how I pray our lives will echo this. And those of you in the room who aren't Christians, who are trusting in your own good deeds to save you, oh, how I hope that you will trust in Jesus, that you'll put your faith in him, that you'll trust that his death was all that was necessary to pay for your pardon and that you would respond in faith to him today so that we might be able to say what John Newton said. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, was saved Out of the slave trade, he said this. John Newton talking about himself, he said, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be. But still, I'm not what I used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Listen, folks. We will never walk in a manner worthy of the calling of God until we realize that we are not who we ought to be. We're not who we want to be. We're not who we hope to be. But still, we're not who we used to be. By the grace of God, we are who we are. Sinners rescued by a holy God. We will live that out. Oh, how we will show people the beautiful grace of God. But it means we're gonna have to love one another. It means we're gonna have to fight for unity together. It means we're gonna have to bear with one another. It means we're gonna have to be patient with one another. It means that we're gonna have to love each other when we don't feel like loving each other. It means that we're gonna have to be gentle. It means that we're gonna have to be humble. But we can do all these things in Christ. Why? Because he did them all for us first. Let us model our Jesus Every day, let's walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Would you pray with me, Lord Jesus? I pray today that you will help us as Christians in the room to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. That you demonstrated ultimate humility when you came and you died on the cross for us. That you you demonstrated ultimate gentleness in the fact that you cared for us like sheep who are without a shepherd. That you demonstrated the ultimate uh, uh, concern for us. That you you were ultimately patient with us and that you bore with us while we were sinners. God, I thank you that you didn't send your son once we deserved him because we never would have, but you sent your son to die on the cross while we were yet sinners. Oh, how amazing your humility. Oh, how amazing your gentleness. Oh, how amazing your patience has been towards us, God. And I pray that you'll help us as Christians to realize that we have been called to live in a way to reflect this grace you've poured out on us. So, Father, help us as Christians to do it. Help us to fight for unity. Help us to love one another. Help us to be patient with one another. Help us to be gentle and humble with one another. Help us to care for one another and bear with each other through all things. Father, forgive us where we fail and make us a closer family than we've ever been before. And God... For the people in this room who aren't part of your family yet, God, I pray this morning you'll save them and you'll bring them into your family, that you'll adopt them by your son, that you'll cause them to see clearly their sin and how ugly it is, that you might drive them to the foot of your son, that while they behold the greatness of their sin, they might also behold the greatness of the Savior. Oh, Father, save as only you can. Change hearts in this place. We ask you to do it so that you would receive more glory and more worship. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.